Welcome to a very special episode of the Modernist Society. I'm Jason Mojica in Brooklyn. And I'm Eric Attens in Chicago. It is special not because it features Tom Hanks drinking vanilla extract. Uh, uh, I don't even get that. What's going on over there? <laughs> welcome to the Modernist Society, uh, a, a very special episode of the Modernist Society. Um, so special that Eric and I have been sitting here trying to figure out how to do the intro to this episode. Um, look, you know, we're, we're not radio announcers, uh, so I, I, I can't actually get this into a concise little package but basically uh, like you we've been alternating between um, making jokes about uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic and being legitimately afraid of it um, and, and we've like you have uh, been confined to our homes so what we've done is a uh, cry out for help or, or, or rather uh, reach out to people we know around the world, including uh, former modernist society guests to help us understand just what is happening. So this episode, probably we put the most, no, not probably, we did put the most time and effort into this one of any that we have done so far, and we are pretty happy with it and proud of it. It's an emotional roller coaster ride. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll kiss five bucks goodbye. Uh, we're gonna talk to Tim Kinsella and Jenny Pulse of Good Fuck. They're in Chicago, just got back from an ill-timed move to Italy. Um, Trace Crutchfield in Brooklyn. We'll talk to Charlie Laduff in Detroit. Ariel Barty in Rome. We'll go to upstate New York and talk to Thomas Morton. We'll uh, catch up with Chris Masuro in Tokyo, Alessandro Rampietti in Bogota, Jim Kelly in New Orleans, Richard Gisbert in London, Jason Leopold in Los Angeles, Jake Adelstein in Tokyo, and Joshua Wong in Hong Kong. Um, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I think that about says it all. I think that was great. <laughs> oh, and... and and because music is something that helps us through these trying times, we've asked each of our guests to help us build a playlist that captures some essence of this moment. And this harebrained idea started because I couldn't get uh, the circle jerks when the shit hits the fan out of my head these past couple of weeks. Stand in line for you can find that playlist on Spotify and iTunes under Coronavirus Potluck. And we'll post a link to it on themodernist.com, along with links to the excellent work of this episode's many guests. These interviews were recorded between the 23rd and the 30th of March, 2020. Surprise. First people we're going to talk to are Tim Kinsella and Jenny Pauls of Goodfuck. They recently got back from Southern Italy, where they had had a very firsthand run-in with COVID-19. Yeah, so Tim and Jenny joining us from Chicago, thank you very much. Uh, the last time we talked is just a few short months ago, and a lot has happened since then. Uh, you guys got married. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, then you moved to Italy. And how, how, did, how did that go? After you, my dear. Uh, <laughs> amazing and then devastating. <laughs> yeah, we were we were there for one week. 
we were planning on moving indeterminately, thinking we were escaping America. We were there one week before our show in Milan, and then that's when I got sick, and then I gave it to Jen, and then we got to see a bunch of amazing places playing shows, but then we were both sick, and then as soon as we were better, then it then it, the coronavirus exploded over there, and we were just trapped in the house. Talk to us about getting sick and when you started to think it was something other than just getting sick. I think we just thought we had the flu. Yeah, I mean, Tim just totally lost his voice. The different symptoms were the dryness and like this dry cough, which I don't feel like I've ever had during the flu. And I've also never had the flu for longer than two days where I think I had it severely for like at least four days straight. And then I went to the hospital and they like pumped me with electrolytes and gave me antibiotics. And Tim just was sick for weeks because he refused to accept that he was sick. Well, we were, I mean, we were also on tour and it was like, I mean, I could, I accepted I was sick, but I also accepted I had to go to work. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like, that was all the money we were making. Like, our lives are so fucked. The only, I mean, like, everyone's lives are so fucked. Good fucked. It doesn't make it any easier that your own life is fucked, just knowing that everyone's life is fucked. I guess it makes it a little easier, because I don't know how to talk to our landlady and be like, hey, we, as self-employed people, just had two-thirds to three-quarters of the income we were expecting not happen and also both of our subletters got laid off like so like i have no idea how to say that to her but at least i'm not the only person saying it to her so i guess it's it's a little easier that everyone in the world's yeah canceled all their plans at the same time yeah but but aside from the illness within yourself being different than perhaps normal at what point did you realize this was a thing because for example i i went to hong kong and at that and at that time it was news of this was kind of bubbling up in wuhan and there were three confirmed cases in hong kong but that didn't seem like a reason to not go to hong kong it wasn't even until i left that it kind of became a uh, you know, it seemed like someone was raising a hand and going, this is a, a, a for real problem that is going to spread beyond uh, these few discrete places. It was still post me being in the hospital. Like when I went there, they made me wear a mask and they asked if I had been to China, but they didn't ask me if I had been to Milan or anywhere in the Lombardy region. So... It, was in, it wasn't until after I felt better that I think Lombardy was under lockdown. So yeah. it still took a bit of time after us being sick. There was really like, there was, because I was, after I was sick, I, it lingered for so long. It was like a month of feeling beat up and exhausted. And then she was sick right after me. And it was really like, we were both feeling good and and, you know this was time off we were supposed to be working on our record before we were heading to um the lombardi region for a residency at this uh recording studio which you know then 
we canceled, which, and they were kind of disappointed, but then they went, they were pretty immediately after that quarantined. Mm -hmm. But we, I would say we had about f maybe 36 good hours where we were healthy hmm. and feeling good. And then we were having dinner at a friend's house and the news broke. It's, uh, yeah, I would say we had one healthy day there. <laughs> and then, and then it was like, oh fuck, this is happening. And then once, once they started publicizing the uh, symptoms, then it was pretty clear to us like, oh, that's not the flu, it's different. Mm. And that's what we had. And when we were, you know, like we were still playing shows, so we were, and everyone we knew got sick, and everyone we knew had it. Right, and, but and it was right after we were in Milan, and we played this festival, and there were tons of people, and we were in a car with like well, seven other kids with the windows rolled up, and we're all breathing on each other. It's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. And and as you were on your way out of the country, you know, you were also posting a lot of heads up, a lot a lot of warnings to friends in the U.S. to uh, get ready. Well, it's it's funny to hear you say that because I feel like there was a whole week or ten days where we were locked in the house, where we were like, you look at Instagram and like all our friends would be like packed in a show, or like just going about their business, and, and we. There was probably a good whole week or ten days that we were like, do we need to like write everyone we know and just be like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, so it's funny because we didn't think we were doing enough or even doing that. Yeah, I think when people reached out to us asking if we were okay, I would say we are all right, but prepare yourselves and take this seriously because it is already in America. It's just the fact that, I mean, and we're still not testing enough. So we don't know how many cases we're dealing with, but even, yeah, when we were like getting ready to kind of leave or else just stay and quarantine ourselves, uh, I feel like I was, yeah. I was telling people like, just stay inside for now. Definitely don't hang out with large groups of people. When there's like a world historical event without precedent, unless you've like, or without, you know, contemporary precedent, unless you've been like someone who's like, studied catastrophes you're not mentally prepared to understand it so all our friends were just kind of like oh it's nothing the media's blowing up you know making a thing out of this and just not taking it seriously so i do feel like that's an advantage we have here over italy that we've been able to see what happened there so we can learn a lesson from them hopefully and take social distancing more seriously and stuff the big shift that like a friend of mine there said the other day was like, uh, oh, you know, it went from like two weeks ago, everyone knew someone who lost their job. A week ago, everyone lost their job. This week, everyone knows someone who's died. Hmm. Well, we need to think about is that we're not so far behind Italy. And so it's like, how can we mentally prepare ourselves for like transitioning every single day into basically creating what our futures are going to be like what is this country going to be like after this virus is gone and we don't know how long that's going to be because of our issues with 
containment like you know some people are allowed to still go out and about and so it's still spreading and you know here and we're in wisconsin right now everything is pretty much shut down which is great and i think the sooner that happens more hopeful i am that you know it will end soon but we just don't know right now yeah i mean i guess i just hope it's uh it's obviously like a paradigm shattering event i just hope that like somehow the great majority of people in the world that have sort of egalitarian and righteous values but seem to just get globally bullied by like the tyrants and criminals hopefully we can somehow not let them just take advantage of it and you know microchip us all or whatever (laughs) (laughs) well we should uh wrap it up but i want to ask uh both of you if is there a song that comes to mind that you feel sums up this moment or perhaps one that helps you forget it i've been listening to i've just been listening to superstition by stevie wonder every day (laughs) (laughs) because it's like the only thing that makes me feel super happy because i mean that horn section is just like the most bitten thing that has ever existed i think yeah and when you know you gave me a little warning earlier to think about this and all i could think is like who gives a fuck like no way i don't have a song (laughs) but like if put on the spot i will just and i know this has to do exactly with like my the moment of my birth of of like like uh, in my life there and i know this sounds like martin scorsese at his laziest but like Jimi Hendrix covering all along the watchtower is like it's like I I I don't ever even listen to it. It like comes on on a car commercial once every eighteen months, and I get weepy. So I just, if I can just recall that song, that would be like the weirdest sort of dark streak of being that I know. <laughs> There's too much confusion. Next, we go to Brooklyn to catch up with cultural icon and bon vivant, Trace Crutchfield. Full disclosure, Trace and I are collaborators on an anti-Trump super PAC called Ixnay PAC. And yes, we are happy to accept your unlimited corporate contributions over at ixnaypac.org. Hey, hey. How are you guys? Hey, good to see you. Good to meet you. So Trace, how are you? Where are you? And uh, how are you? Are you surviving? How are you surviving? Oh my God. I, I'm mostly focused on trying to be healthy. I just got obsessed with reading about longevity because when you're getting old and you feel like you're going to die and I just wanted to live through this. So of all the things that I could read or look at, I thought it would be helpful for me to pay attention to guys saying, well, maybe you should take some of these vitamins or some of these molecular agents. And in fact, I was so obs- I've been not obsessed, but I've been exercising and doing some like Wim Hof breathing exercises. You know, that crazy Dutch Iceman guy doing this nitrous oxide dump. And I, my son told me that I was starting to sound like uh, Ryan Duffy, of all people, a little insider baseball. <laughs> obsessed with my health in a way that's not healthy, probably. Uh, another funny thing in sort of in this this world of like, how healthy can you be? Will it, will it help you to be healthy to survive if you get the coronavirus, right? 
because it seems like everybody is going to get it at some point, but if you can delay it. And my friend was going on to me about breathing through your nose and this whole nitric oxide thing. And just breathing through your nose is so much more healthy and you should do that. And that your nose hairs are really important. And I was just thinking in my mind, imagining how when, whenever we're all released back out into the world, that there's going to be people who are going to come out looking, you know, like with their hair long and their fingernails long, like Howard Hughes wearing Kleenex boxes on their feet. But it's like me and my buddies might just come out with our nose hairs out to here looking like catfish going, I can breathe anything. I got nothing to worry about. This is a game changer. My God, every day. I just wake up, you know, that movie, I never really loved the movie movie Groundhog Day. People think it's so fantastic. I'm like, whatever. But waking up in these mornings and I just think, what do I have to do today? And I was like, I don't have anything to do. I can't do anything. <laughs> and you just lay in bed there and you're like, yeah, this is weird. Maybe the movie had a point. But you were one of the last people on a plane in this country. I mean, you were just flying recently. Why? Why? Oh, well, so, well, I've been a couple of places now that probably weren't really smart. I went to Mardi Gras. <laughs> They're all now New Orleans is exploding. And then I went to Austin to try to open a bar for South by Southwest. So it was right there when they pulled the rug out from underneath everything. But there's still quite a few people around. And on the, I guess, last Monday was the 16th. And on that day, we were supposed to sign a lease and give a deposit on this space. And I was like, on the, that Sunday night on the 15th, I was like, I got to go home to New York. I can't do this. And I, it, the writing seemed to be on the wall that they were going to close all bars and things. And I was like, yeah, we can't do this right now. I've got to get out of here and go back home. So I came to New York on that Monday. I was at JFK. Everyone, I'd been on a few airplanes in the last couple of months, and everyone was like just a little bit weirder and a little bit weirder. And on that last one was a JetBlue plane, and they let us all sit really far apart, which is probably not that helpful on an airplane anyway. But just when I got off the plane, and then I was like, I'm just going to take the subway home. Because I've been reading about these poor lift people and people taking people to the hospital. They were all getting infected. So I was like, I should just take the train. So I was on the train just going, this is insane. <laughs> but I made, then when I came home, I was like, what am I going to do? My uh, son is with his mom, and she goes, well, you can't see him for 14 days. I was like, what? Oh, so it's just start pacing around my house listening to music because I didn't know what else to do. Well, let's hear about that. What music gets played during these these trying times? Yesterday, I listened to all of Chumbawamba's records. That's my new. <laughs> thing. All I listened to. All they of have them. a fascinating turn because they were like a like a crass influence, like anarcho political band to tub thumping, and then presumably beyond. And you just went the whole distance. I went the whole distance because it literally they kind of stayed the same. It's a, really an interesting story about them because in the beginning they were just like one of the cassette bands. And uh, the song that I really like is Mouthful of Shit. He goes, I can't hear what you're saying because your mouth's full of shit. And then the woman goes, you think you're God's gift, you're a liar. I wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire. So it has like some... Some really good lyrics and it's really like listening to the pet shop boys if they were like drunken anarchists <laughs> how are you feeling about your quote-unquote leaders <laughs> well my song my chumbawamba song mouthful of shit is pretty on target right they're not really pulling any punches despite it's presented in a quite dancey way it's just like unbelievable i mean i don't really know what to think about the government it just seems like it's a we're all being punked i still still think ashton kutcher could jump out at any moment <laughs> 
I saw a funny line that Dr. Fauci, the little, the smart, the smart one of the gang, was like saying, what do you want me to do? Get up there and push Trump out of the way of the thing? And I was like, yes, fucking yes. Dude, how much of a hero would be that guy be if he just wouldn't just elbow Trump out of the way? And goes, no, that's wrong. So what if he loses his job? Next, we go to Detroit to talk to Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and host of the No BS News Hour, Charlie LaDuff. Charlie, I know we're calling you late, so thank you for taking the time. And, and you mentioned uh, you were getting into the beer, so I, I want to join you in one, if I may. I got them locked away, man. <laughs> you have them locked away? I'm locked away, so I'm going to drink the beer, but I'm leaving the bottle so I can sip it. Because I got to make this shit last till the rapture. <laughs> right. How, how much do you have in, in reserve? Or I guess do you not want to say lest people start? No, I, I do. To track I, mean, I, did, I got I got scattered bottles like Grandpa. Let me think. Uh, one, two, three, four. Maybe four of those. Maybe five of that. Yeah, I got about thirty-five. Yeah, I'm not afraid, man, because life's been pretty good, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of that, has that taken a turn? I mean, what's going on? What's the what's your view of the world from Detroit at this moment? Uh, okay, here here's the deal. Here's what, uh, unpracticed, unvarnished, straight from the top of the bottle. What this thing has revealed is two things to me that are outrageous from the, the parapet of Detroit. Our lack of preparedness. It's been almost two decades since 9-11, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking at the trillions we spent, and I'm not a anti-government person, you know, I'm not a Bolshevik, I'm not any of that, but where's the preparedness? What happened to all the money? Nobody figured to stockpile anything or have a master plan. Even Hollywood came up with the movie Contagion, and yet Homeland Security and emergency preparedness did not. Number two, this shows you how sickly the economy truly is over this last decade. It was fed saccharin, sugar, uh, government stimulus, monetary stimulus. When you have a disruption to the chain, yes, I know, folks, it's it's a pandemic. We've never seen it. But whether it's that or subprime mortgages or subprime uh, loans on used automobiles, any disruption to the flow of debt, you know, everything's on credit. And in Detroit, you know, everybody said Detroit was, was comeback, comeback. And I would get, you know, a little, little picked on. Uh, I'm saying it's a mirage, man. Crime's not down. Poverty's not down. Wages aren't really up. Wealth is not recovered. This is bullshit. And now we see it. And now what are we going to do? This is why Bernie Sanders will not drop out of this race. He's going to go one more time with the, I told you so. Hmm. And he did tell us so, and he's right. And I, I doubt that is his, his medicine and his prescription for what ails us is the proper, you know, antidote. But he's right. I think we all know he's right. And I'm uh, look, here's what we got tonight. We got no masks anywhere. I mean, that's like the whole country. But our county jail has not passed a health inspection ever. It's under court supervision for the last... 40 years. So tonight I will report to you that the head man, the commander of the maximum security jail in Detroit has just died from Corona. Last night, 
Seriously? The captain, the ranking, yes. Last night, the ranking officer in the Detroit Police Department homicide squad died from corona. We are unprepared. We have bullshit proclamations. Nothing's getting done. There's no leadership. And I'm pissed. Understandably so. We've had millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions in this state, go to Homeland Security, no master plan, no training, no equipment. So nobody can sit there in a position of authority and say, how could you imagine this coming? A kid imagines this coming. And now what do we do for the kids? What did we find out? This country is so upside down, and it was papered over with fake money, that you now see the millions of children who, whose parents can't feed them, and we had to leave the schools open because we had no plan how to feed children who are hungry in case of a natural disaster. We didn't even accomplish that. That should bother everybody. And it's not just Trump. It's the governor of Michigan who likes to go on the morning shows. It's the county executive. It's the mayor. It's the business leaders. It's the media. It's you and it's me. And the only guy doing an honest fucking day's work is the garbage man. And if it wasn't for the garbage man, we'd all be in pestilence right now. And what's he looking at? All those idiots throwing out our throw carpets and our wine racks and our, you know, outdated, you know, flat screens. What he must think of us you know there are 39 something thousand individual governments in this country and and my fear initially was that everyone was going to want to be seen to be doing something basically just it was going to be like attack of the little kings you know flexing their muscles and and perhaps overstepping just to show how protective they could be but i mean are you seeing any of that in detroit is there anyone flexing no. their muscles no you, you. <laughs> you know, the, the the nationalists and the Bolsheviks take over is when somebody's actually able to do that and show you something. I see little mice running around. I see no leadership. Look, we all know this, and this is why we should throw away the labels. A bureaucracy, you know, the only public money, I mean, the only money left is public money. You know, the only real jobs are the bureaucracy. No offense, but... People don't do an awful lot. Like I said, you know, you come to work every day, you work for Homeland Security, boom, the bell rings, and you've got nothing. What have you been doing all day, all month, all year, all decade? I would love for somebody to step up and say, hey, I know I got 5,000 employees under me, but here's what I can do. Here are the 50 that are capable of doing something, that are responsible for doing something, who can, like, get rid of the red tape, get the mask, Get them to the hospitals, right? Get some, we don't, our jails don't have working showers upon intake. So you come in off the street, right? There are no thermometers, no questionnaires. They throw you in a holding cell with somebody else. The deputies have no respirators. And you don't get clean before they pop you in a general population. And, and this that's is something, you know, you, were, you just were reporting on this, right? I mean, pre-coronavirus, correct? Yes, yeah, of course. Hey, this is told the, you the so. Wayne County Jail, is that right? Yes. So, you know, I mean, how about this? Let's get the National Guard in there, power wash that motherfucker, right? Get some portable showers in there and a vacuum pack machine to, you know, put these people's uh, clothes in, in, in um, 
in a hermetically sealed, you know, bag, so it doesn't infect people. Rikers has that. L.A. County Jail's got that. Cook County Jail's got that. We don't have that. Follow us. We, we nobody knows how to make a fire. You know what we do? We replace it with the glow of the flat screen and Netflix. Nobody knows how to make a bar of soap. Nobody can grow a tomato plant. Nobody can even recycle a pair of rubber gloves. We don't, we don't know how to do anything. And now we're sitting around thinking, all right, uh, the proclamation has come from on high. Only essential people can be on the streets. Well, who's essential? Now it is the working man again. Here's who's essential. Here's who actually does things. I don't depend on the mayor. He's a bozo. Our mayor's a fucking bozo. Sorry. Right? Here's who I depend on. The utility worker who's up in the wire and down in the sewer. The nurse who's going to the hospital, to the tents, without without the gear on. The garbage man. Uh, who else can I say? The priest, the ancient priest who tends to the dying when he's not supposed to. You know, the the clerk at the pet food store, because we love our pets, too, and if he doesn't show up, what the fuck? All those regular people who lost in that golden decade, we were told, you know, the, the bull market, right, when all the golden pears were falling out of the tree, except the working person never made money, got their pensions taken from them, they were stripped of everything, and now it's all fucking collapsed, and ask yourself, is the mayor an, an essential person? Is the stockbroker? No, in fact, maybe they're the essential problem. It's back again, dude. Can you feel it on me? I'm angry. I do, but at the same time, I, I do wonder, do you think... I'm not losing my mind, though, right? right? Well, so don't go we, hurt people. You don't need to buy a gun you don't know how to use. Right, I was listening to your latest, uh, the latest episode of the No BS News Hour, and I, I heard that being discussed, uh, just kind of a, a run on the gun shops. And, uh, nice segue, thanks for the plug. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, do you think there's anything good that can come of this? Yes, absolutely. Number one, let me say, I'm not proselytizing, I'm a Catholic. You know, there's very many good things about the faith. This is the Lenten season. So whether it's chance or whatever you want to think of, what the Almighty might be if there's anything, here's a chance to look at yourself, consider what you're doing, how you live, and maybe you can reassess. And maybe you can realize that since we're all here together, we're all essential. No person's an island, and everybody's a grain of sand, and when the wave takes you away, the island is diminished. So maybe we get a hold of ourselves, we do what was taught to us by our elders, save a little bit, don't be a glutton, look after your community and your children, right? Pay attention to the lake levels and the quality of the air. Maybe we do a little something like that. Maybe we now must slow down, and we must be fearful about what the future is. And, and what we did and what we're doing with money and debt, you know, maybe a little parsimony goes a long way. I, I don't know. Maybe we just take a breath and calm ourselves and recalibrate. There could be a lot of good that comes from this. We're not going to disappear. Remember that. Amen. Well, it's heavy, man. Let me get a little. Hold on a second.
Hold on. <laughs> get a little bit of the beer. Hold on, because I'm. Well, well, what, what, what? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I gotta savor that. Come on. It's a bit of a palate cleanser. Um, well, and, and on that note, we're putting together a little playlist to go with this episode of what is a good song for this time. You gonna is pull my pants song? down like that? Hmm. <laughs> yep. Give me a second. Let me. Okay. Well, obviously, it should be from Detroit. And as we all know, Detroit is the center of the American universe. So something Detroit, speaking of the times from back in the time. Got it. Ready? Yeah. The Temptations. All the confusion. That's really good. That's that's a really, really, really good one. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Glad you like yeah, it. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I didn't think of it, but... I'm being very sincere. That, that was a, that really. Uh, so far, I'm gonna put that at number one. That's great. That's why your show is in the top one million of iTunes, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast, my it's all relative. It's all relative. Yeah, which, which, by the way, remember, we are all relatives. Rebel. We last caught up with Thomas Morton back in August for the Modernist Society episode two. At the time, he was just getting used to living a life far removed from the hustle and bustle of New York City. So we go now to upstate New York to see how the current crisis is treating Thomas. Thomas, how are you? Where are you? Are you surviving? I'm good. I'm in the middle Hudson Valley. I'm doing good. This is I've, I I have I gotta say I've got a real like jump on this whole cabin fever social isolation thing. I've been socially distant for <laughs> I mean arguably my whole life, but like in an acute sense, like the last year. So this is not a shock to the system. It's just kind of more of the same. More of the same. What does uh, the coronavirus pandemic look and feel like uh, from where you're sitting? You know, people are kind of like, people kind of like hang out at home up here. So it's only really weird when you like get into a store and like there's nobody at the Walmart or like, like when I was going into Target, they had like a person who was like making sure there was only a certain number of people coming in. Oh, and then they had to, they turned off the automatic doors, which I thought was odd. So they had to like physically open them just like in the original season of Star Trek. (laughs) I, you know, I read a very dense scientific article the other day, and the only thing I took away was, I think, really the important thing, which was this thing that is causing the world to implode uh, can be defeated with soap, so long as it is outside your body. Right, uh, right, so just yeah. Kind of like, <laughs> like, it's not that hard. <laughs> um, I remember learning that when um, when I was doing, um, I was doing a story on... Uh, uh, Clostridium difficile, and and specifically, like it was because that's the one thing they use fecal transplants for, and so it was a story about that, and how that's one of those bacteria that is like when they say you know, hand sanitizer is ninety nine percent effective, it's in the one percent of bacteria that don't respond generally to alcohol based hand sanitizers or the you know purels or whatever you sell, and then being shocked 
by realizing when someone was saying, yeah, the way you defeat it is you wash your fucking hands. You put soap on your hands in hot water and you wash it because while Purell's is 99% effective, soap is 100% fucking effective. <laughs> you know? I don't know. People are going to look back on us and be like, well, wait, they had soap and like they had specially made hand sanitizer. Like that whole industry of that. Why weren't people just like so just people weren't using it like is that going to carry through like are people going to understand that in 500 years they're going to be like people in the 20th century and the 21st century were so fucking lazy and i'm really guilty of this it's like they would not like we all had access to you know state-of-the-art hygiene but just didn't practice it you know just let it slide <laughs> Thomas, this might get back to like the first question that Jason threw at you, but I'm very curious. You, you were, I believe, I don't want to misquote, you kind of said like, not all that much. I mean, your ice cube crunching is... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't know you could hear that. I should stop that. I'm 37. I really should stop that. <laughs> all right. But there has to be some way in which your life has been affected or changed within the last week or two. Oh, Yeah. It's like, as long as I've been up here, and even even in times when it didn't seem likely that I would come into the city and hang out and see people, like, um, every, every so often someone would come up and see me, you know? And more often than not, once a month or so, I'd take the train into the city and I'd go see people. And, like, that relief valve, like, people people who saw me when I got off the train and, like, hung out for a day or so, like, witnessed the fact that I'd essentially like when you isolate yourself you can really fry your fucking brain pretty hard it makes me think about how like when you know people have like a problem with meth that like the worst thing that they're doing to themselves is sleep deprivation and it's like social isolation like i turn into like it just it it, it affects one in ways i just wouldn't have considered i speak really quickly when i when i haven't been around people i think i have a slightly higher pitched voice just because i haven't been practicing it Nevertheless, even when even when I've been like on my own for a while, at least the idea that like, you know, well, if you feel a little like cooped up and crazy, you can just go into town. That's fine. That that really when the second that relief valve went away, like day one, it felt completely different. I was just like, oh, shit, I'm here for I'm here for months. Like I'm here for months. Nobody's up here with me. Like they caught me totally, totally off guard. My car is kind of in in a state but that's that's yeah personally that's the only way it's really affected me so far i've just been this is this is the life i've been living beforehand so i, I feel bad for other people um especially because i know what they're about to start feeling so so thomas we're, we're putting together a bit of a playlist i wonder if there is a single song that you feel captures this moment or perhaps uh just something else that is helping you get through these trying times. I keep bumping into um, No Depression in Heaven by the Carter family. Like, mm. And that one's like dead on. The Great Depression didn't know it was ending. It's all about the depression coming and like that's God's will. But that song's, that song suits, right? But I think the, the anthem for the coronavirus will be Typo Negative's cover of Summer Breeze by Seals and Crop. I 
I think it <laughs> exemplifies one the slowness, but like the mounting sense of terror too. And not just, I'm sorry, not the mounting sense of terror, just the continuous, the continuous like plodding. Next, we go to Japan to talk to Chris Masuro, an artist and linguist who's lived in Tokyo for the past 20 years. Oh, hey, man. Good to see you. That's <laughs> great. Good to see you, too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jason. Nice to meet you. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I've enjoyed listening to previous episodes of your podcast. You're oh, the only so guest much. that can say that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm your biggest you fan. Who's enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna cut to the the kind of meat of the, meat of the call, which is you know we're talking about coronavirus. Uh, I'm right. in Chicago. Jason's over there in New York, and you're over there in Tokyo. I mean, you're gonna get married, which is great. I mean, the big story here is congratulations. I'm very happy for you. I've met your wife. Thanks. She's a wonderful lady. That's super cool. And you scheduled it for April 1st. In my mind, when you postponed it. I was surprised because it, it seemed like a, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal. But now yeah. with the benefit of hindsight, it seems like complete common sense that of course you, you would have. So I'm, I would just want to hear about if you remember more specifically, like when you came to that conclusion and kind of your thought process, I would like to hear about that. Well, we're, we're trendsetters over here and uh, we, we saw that this coronavirus thing was going to be huge. And uh, people weren't buying it yet, but we knew it had legs. So we, we got in on the ground floor. People <laughs> thought we were crazy. No, no, actually, what happened was uh, it started to it started to kind of take root over here. And um, Rhea, my, my fiancee's wife, is quite old and uh, she she's older. And, and Rhea got worried about her coming into Tokyo and being exposed to it. And she was one of, Sorry, I guess. Say again, uh, I think you said your fiance's wife. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so. It's not, but I love it. Thank you for doubling down on that. That's very good. <laughs> You know, oh, sorry, that was presumptuous of me. I know I'm a bit old fashioned. Sorry. Sorry. Proceed. Proceed. And uh, we started talking about postponing the wedding. So I did, and I pretty quickly felt uh, like I had jumped the gun on it. It could have gone one of two ways at that point, but but as it turned out, it really started spreading over here. And so, um, uh, well, as you said, the wedding was scheduled for April 1st, and we wouldn't have even been able to hold it anyway because um, of what's happened in the United States and, and over here since then. So um Turned out to be a good decision. You probably know Tokyo uh, and Japan in general have only taken or, or made limited restrictions on people's movements and what people should be doing. There hasn't been a lockdown. Um, it's been everybody... Uh, there's been requests and, and recommendations from the government of the city and the government of the country, but everybody's at their discretion. Um, and they say, you know, try not to gather in large groups, uh, try to avoid non-essential travel. Um, but that's about it. It, it. it made me 
think of the nuclear meltdown, which I was also here for, when um, um, the reactor exploded. I mean, I turned on the TV to see a nuclear reactor explode, explode like there was dynamite in it. It just blew into a million pieces. And I said, well, that's not good. And then a lot of the people around me just went to work. And the whole city, Tokyo, where I live, just kind of went to work and, and kind of didn't try not to think about it too much. Chris, do you still, so do you commute? I mean, if you ride the train, you are exposed to like at least 300 people, you know, each way of your commute. So I, I'm very interested if um, if you and most people are still commuting into work or not. Yeah, that's it. I mean, um, I saw a statistic that 10% of the population is working from home and, and Tokyo is where, where most of the working population is. And I was riding the train yesterday. It's packed. There's no, there's no difference between the way it was before and the way it is now, practically. And I mean, unless something is enforced, unless like the government says, okay, companies have to shut there's nothing preventing the spread of the virus. I think that's really weird because we're trying so hard. I really feel like, I mean, again, I've been home for like two weeks. Uh, my wife has been home for two weeks. I feel like that's like normal uh, here. So I think it's super crazy that like everyone's just out and about in Tokyo. It seems like a hundred percent, you know, reaction and zero reaction. And I feel like, one of those has to be right and one of those has to be wrong. So either it's it's either it's actually basically okay and it doesn't matter or or not. And Tokyo has made a really big mistake. Um Eric, we should probably wrap up. Do you want to take us to the playlist? I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that the uh what I'm supposed to do is ask Chris if you have a song that you feel captures this moment. So, uh, okay, um, what's that one that, uh, what's it, Go Go Godzilla? Oh, <laughs> Go Go Gorilla? No. There goes Tokyo, Go Go Godzilla. Helpless people on subway trains scream by God as he looks in on them. Now we go to Rome to talk to journalist and international development consultant Ariel Bardi. <laughs> Hello, how are you doing? Good. Are we? Do I have to turn my video on? You don't have to. Yeah, you know, I heard podcast. I wasn't thinking I had to get dressed or anything. I'm wearing sweatpants, so fifty-fifty. Well, you know, above the waist—that's all that matters these days. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. So, are you guys both in New York? I'm in Chicago. Okay. How's how's the scene in Chicago? Uh, I mean, I feel like we've responded pretty vigilantly in terms of like locking everything down. And then each time people find the new place to go gather, they shut that down. So although I think we just had a huge spike in cases yesterday. So (laughs) maybe the efforts are still insufficient. I don't know. Mm. Ariel, how long have you been indoors at this point? Um, So it's going to be three weeks Monday. But um, it, it, you know, they started it off for a couple of days. They just um, they had a curfew and some businesses closed, and then they sprang the hardcore lockdown on us um, the Wednesday after. So I don't know. It's been long enough. I've kind of lost track of all time. 
the days are kind of bleeding into each other. And I heard yesterday, it's probably going to be until May or June that mm-hmm. um, they lift this at all, which is kind of like two more months of this is sort of unfathomable. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. I mean, I think uh, the way I've been feeling and a lot of people I've talked to is kind of initially, it was kind of like, okay, crisis mode, just deal. And it was, you know, there was a bit of an adrenaline rush to it all. But yeah, looking at the future <laughs> as uh containing nothing but your four walls um, can induce panic. How are you dealing with it? And and what do people who are just in the beginning of uh, lockdown have to look forward to? Honestly, I feel like I have kind of a weird opinion on this because until probably yesterday, I was loving quarantine. Like, I feel like I was made for quarantine. And um, I feel like I've kind of been quarantining my whole life and finally people are kind of coming around to it like I'm a homebody by nature I like just kind of hanging out and cooking and doing weird craft projects so I feel like I've had a I've had a pretty good experience so far um I have a tiny studio but I've been staying at a friend's and we've just had this kind of like very eccentric but kind of idyllic household arrangement um she's adopted a dog two days into quarantine Hmm which is a really good move. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's panic and stuff too to try to quell that. Um, I just kind of have leaned into the crazy and um, I just, I don't know. We, we've, my, my friend and I almost called her my roommate because I've been here almost three weeks. Um, we just have like completely gone crazy. We just have gone full crazy. And um, examples. We've, um, the, <laughs> the past couple of days, we've just been talking to each other, like in not even really, like a kind of combination of quotes from Forrest Gump, which is like really not a topical <laughs> reference, um, and like weird squawking noises and just really bad accents. And that, that's like our entire rapport. I feel unhinged. I actually just wrote an advice column for people, and I'm just about to say I don't actually have any advice other than just, um, you know, lean into the crazy, don't fight it. Um, this situation is completely insane. Didn't you say that until yesterday you kind of liked it? What happened yesterday? Yeah, yesterday was a bad day. I don't know. I feel like partly um, I just was getting kind of overconfident. I was like, all right, I've cracked the quarantine code. Like, I am killing this. I'm doing so well. And then um, so it's kind of setting myself up for a fall. I don't know. The death toll in Italy was really high yesterday. I mean, there's just a lot, um, a lot of reasons to feel to feel kind of morose. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's hard to it's hard to feel really, um, you know, jubilant throughout this entire process. So there's going to be bad days. And other than that, I mean, nothing happened. Nothing happens in quarantine time. <laughs> like it's every day is identical. So that's kind of interesting, too, because you can see how your mood changes, like based on I don't even know what. It's just because um, there's no there's no like external factors determining it. Specific to Rome, I mean, what are you seeing and are you getting out of the house at all? And, and, and you know, how, how have you seen yeah. kind of uh, this change in the short time that it's been happening? I feel like people here are taking it really seriously. Um, it's funny too, because 
I've been in Rome. I've lived here a little over a year, like a year and a few months. And I complain about how Italian culture is so homogenous and so kind of uh, anti-individualist. But I think in this case, that's kind of in favor of cooperating well with quarantine. Like everyone's just kind of going along with it, like one big family. Um, at least, you know, I should add a caveat that this is what I've observed from the one block radius that I'm confined to. I don't know what's going on outside of that. It's difficult because um, there's a lot of people. I mean, obviously, the economy wasn't good before this happened. So there are um, a lot of people out of work now. And you can kind of feel that desperation now that the honeymoon period of the crisis is kind of waning. You can feel that desperation in the air a little Mm bit. Um, My friend that I'm staying with, she was saying earlier when she was out, she saw this um, really sad, long handwritten sign with someone, this old older man offering just basically to do anything for sick people for mm-hmm. 10 euros an hour. Like he's saying, you know, I'll come, I'll, I'll clean, I'll cook for you. I'll, I'll pick you up at the hospital. Um, and just now that I'm talking, I'm looking out on this rooftop and seeing this guy just like run maniacally, like up and down the rooftop looking crazy. So, you know, I think people are starting to crack and I think um, the economic fallout is going to be really horrible, but I don't think people are letting themselves contemplate that just yet. I mean, we're still very much just in survival mode. Death count is still climbing every day, even as the rate of infection has dropped a little. But on the whole, it's been a nice place to be for quarantine. I, you know, it's especially the first week when everyone was singing every day. I mean, that that was nice. Nobody's doing that anymore. Hmm. How are you feeling about, you know, the quality of information you're getting? I mean, not necessarily about the pandemic outside of Italy, but just in terms of what you need to know uh, there as a person living in Rome. There's been a lot of kind of controversy around the different, you know, each week there's kind of this new decreto and there's been all of these, you know, memes kind of making fun of Conte. Like he, he is just every week has kind of this new announcement and um this is the prime always, minister yeah the prime minister um you know technically we're supposed to keep to 200 meters um radius from where you live and you're supposed to have this form the self-declaration form that keeps changing this is another mm. thing like every maybe twice a week there we there's a new form and you're supposed to print it out so like obviously people don't have printers Copy shops are closed. There's a few. There's a few problems logistically with this. And I know a lot of people who just don't go out. Period. Like they, you know, you're supposed to have one person in the household designated to get groceries. And um, so I know a lot of people who just like they haven't been outside in seven days or something. Hmm. Are there any songs that you think uh, are appropriate for this moment? We've, um, my friend actually that I'm staying with, she, before they cut off all deliveries, except for, um, you know, essential items, she ordered a turntable that's hooked up to Bluetooth. So we've been listening to her very eclectic record collection of, um, like a lot of like South African disco and Mm. stuff like that. Um, so a lot of like really dancey, fun songs. But then yesterday when I slunk into this or sunk into this uh, morose period, then I just couldn't, I couldn't take that anymore. So we were listening to Max Richter. Like he did an album of uh, recomposed Four Seasons. They're very um, kind of jarring, dark, discordant sounding. So that fit the mood a little bit better. ¶¶ 
From an American in Italy, we go to an Italian in Colombia. Alessandro Rampietti is a journalist with Al Jazeera English based in Bogota. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. You caught me eating something sweet. What are you eating? <laughs> um, I don't know, a chocolate sweet eclair. Do you think they're going to shut down New York? Like not let people leave the city, people come in? I don't soon? know. I don't know how they do that. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, look, I mean, that's, uh, that's the situation already, here right now. Yeah. I mean, they're under a shutdown. I mean, I bet that I could see someone, uh, a state that borders New York enforcing that <laughs> potentially mm. <laughs> if, if it becomes, you know, it's going to be like escape from New York. We're just going to build a wall around it. And, uh, right. Uh, <laughs> Trump will build his wall around all the sanctuary cities and, and he'll be, he'll be happy. Um, but speaking of, is there a, a, a lockdown in Colombia and is that nationwide? It started last night at midnight. And what does that entail? What are people supposed to do or what are they not supposed to do? Uh, so p people are supposed to stay in their house unless you work uh, for the food industry or hospitals, healthcare, etc. And you're supposed to stay in the house. You can go out, you can walk out to go and buy food. You're only one member of a family can leave the house to go and buy essentials. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Uh, that, that's what we should be doing until April 13th now. But yeah. actually in Bogota, it all started last Friday because the mayor here, since the president was slow in reacting, according to her, she decided to do a test drive. And so we had uh, four days long that then became uh, uh, become a five days trial uh, of a lockdown. And then a number of cities across this, the country decided also to start over the weekend. Uh, and most people respected it. And then everything uh, went the other way yesterday, um, before the beginning of the national one. And everybody took to the streets, went out buying everything they could. A lot of people went to their office. The buses were full again. So I guess that whatever step forwards we did over the weekend and we lost yesterday, but I guess we're going to find out with the number of contagions in the coming days. Wild. And, and I imagine in, among the people who are allowed to be roaming around, uh, that includes journalists. That's correct. Yes. And However, we are taking a number of measures to reduce contact in the way we work. So we're working in a very different way right now. Yesterday, for example, there was a large group of uh, people who live on the streets, informal workers, and uh, hundreds of Venezuelan immigrants here in Bogota, and they all crowded Central Plaza Bolivar asking for help and assistance because they live hand to mouth. And so they were very worried of what's going to happen if they are supposed to stay in the house for 20 days. Yeah. And, and what, what is going to happen? I mean, for people who are kind of cut <laughs> off <question>. from... <laughs> their source of income. I mean, obviously that's a question that's on the minds of people here in the U S but you know, uh, they're, it's all the more acute for, uh, those who don't have some sort of unemployment mechanism or a savings account or, right. uh, I think that if you ask me, the pessimistic answer is we, we as Lat in Latin America, with all the difference that you have between each country, we are worse off, 
uh, right off the bat because all the countries and all the governments here spend way less on healthcare, there is not, not, not such a strong welfare system as there is in Europe uh, and even in the United States. So that's a big problem in general. Um, I don't know, Italy spends seven, eight percent on, on, on its national health system. Mexico or Colombia spend less than three percent. Mm. So that already tells you a lot of what the worry is here. On top of that, if we look at Colombia in, in particular, there's like nine million people who essentially work informally and every day just make barely enough to survive. And the government here doesn't have the ability to, you know, put a lot of money in, into, you know, inject a lot of money into its social services to make a difference. Even right temporarily. So it's a big, big question. Even temporarily. It's even more complicated because in the Constitution there is a law by which uh, there is a limit set per year, you know, uh, of the, uh, you know, how much the, the state can borrow. Mm. So... So what's going to happen to these people? We don't know. I'm very worried. Yesterday, um, supermarkets in the center of Bogota were attacked by a mob of people, uh, other stores as well. Also, you know, fake news going around yesterday uh, in Medellin, which is Colombia's second biggest city. Uh, Somehow there was this rumor that all uh, Venezuelan migrant families were going to receive uh, $20, uh, 60,000 pesos. And there you had like thousands of Venezuelan migrants in front of the Medellin City Hall, all screaming that they wanted their money and this was all fake. So, wow. You kind of mentioned like a lockdown and, and stay at home and, and only kind of do these necessary things. I was curious how strictly that is enforced, if it's enforced at all. Um, I, I told you earlier that we did a, a four, then, which then became a five day long trial. And during the trial, the police were out and would stop you and, and essentially give you a speech that why, what you were doing was wrong. Starting uh, today, the, you can get fined. So we're going to have to see how many people are on the street, but I understand that um, indeed at the main bus stations, uh, even bike routes, uh, all the entrances to the city, people were being stopped by the police and they risk pretty high fines, uh, you know, up to $300, which is a lot here. So. Um, but, but I guess we're going to have to see, right, in the coming days, how strictly that is enforced. Uh, at least here in Bogota, where I am, the first three or four days were remarkably empty. I was extremely surprised. And then yesterday, uh, all hell broke loose for a while. And I understand things are sort mm -hmm. of back to where they were before today. To circle back, I gotta say, I mean, there is just human nature. There's only so long everyone can stay home. And then the weather. I mean, this whole week in Chicago was just lousy and gloomy and snowy and cold, and you wanted to stay home anyway. And then the first nice day, everyone loses it. Like, I mean, everyone wants to be outside. And Obviously. It's, 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 hard to, it's hard to argue with that. I don't know. 
It's very hard. It's very hard. I'm sure we're gonna start seeing. Um, I'm, I'm Italian, and a lot of friends of mine are like trying to stop their parents to go to the to the store every day or more than once a day because that's the excuse they have. Or people, you know, renting out their dogs so you can go on walks. Well, Alessandro, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you know, you're on the ground in Bogota, you know, dealing with this outbreak all over Latin America as a journalist. But of course, you, you know, you're you're Italian. You have family in Italy, and I'm sure you've been watching that, you know, with rapt attention. Well, it, it, it's very painful because it became personal quite fast uh, with uh, friends who lost their parents. Uh, people staying in their apartments uh, and being afraid because they were surrounded by uh, sick people. Um, and this was before it reached my hometown and where my parents live, uh, which also, you know, happened relatively soon because a lot of the people from Milan and the north went down to the beach. I, I come from the province of La Spezia, which is it's sort of a beach town or there are close by a lot of places where people have second homes etc um and so i just got very worried because i have uh, of course older parents now mm -hmm. uh and and that's something and and then you know in italy i mean families are are very close live together uh, you know so people of different ages are are together all the time which it could have had also a big effect on why you know the the level of people dying is so much higher than in germany for example and it's it's very very painful i have friends who are uh, doctors uh, around cremona and they're telling me you know it, never before in their career they had to decide who to assist mm. and who to let die and this is something that we had never seen before Wow. Yeah, that sounds uh, quite terrible. <laughs> I'm speechless. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's a heavy concept. Um, yeah. Well, look, I mean, yeah, this is the nature. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been talking to people and there's a lot of gallows humor as we're all in this. You know, there is something that no, feels good about all of us being in this together. Uh, uh, sadly, around the world. But look, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that the, the numbers are going down in Italy, right? I mean, the... the important ones the number of new people uh, getting the, the disease every day and um, and the number of hospitalizations are s slowly going down so hopefully this will be the trend more than looking on how many people are dying well we should wrap it up but I want to you know ask you if, if you can uh, add a song to the playlist we're building to kind of uh serve as the soundtrack to our this moment well the first one i i, I can think of is mixomatosis of radiohead which is about a rabbit virus <laughs> it's not gonna help i mean it, it, it's very gloomy i don't think it helps really to embrace <laughs> it Embrace the darkness. It's an appropriate time for a gloomy soundtrack. I think that's fair. All right, intermission. Let's take a, 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 a 
pause, a brief intermission. This is not Lawrence of Arabia. Let's just take a breather. Um, but Eric, you've had a hard time coming to, you know, picking just a single song. What, what, what is, what's your song? This one has been running through my head for weeks, but also for weeks before any of this. Uh, Prince in Love. And I can elaborate at great length extemporaneously on why I find that so incredible. Or you can interject and let it if you have anything you think should be mentioned besides that. Oh, I know you can go on about this one, so I will interject uh, to say we hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Uh, stay tuned for the second half. We've got some incredible folks coming up, including uh, our first Nobel Peace Prize nominee, uh, Joshua Wong. We'll also have FOIA terrorist Jason Leopold, uh, as well as Modernist Society alumni Jake Adelstein, and host of Al Jazeera's listening post, Richard Gisbert. But first, we're going to Louisiana to talk to Jim Kelly. Uh, Jim is executive director of Covenant House New Orleans, which is a shelter for homeless youth. You might have seen Jim in the Renault Brothers documentary Shelter, which incidentally you can watch for free right now on YouTube, uh, and I strongly encourage you to do so. But yeah, let's talk to Jim. Thank you for taking the time, Jim. I'm sure you're uh, incredibly busy. I want to ask you about how you're doing, how uh, New Orleans is doing, how uh, things are unfolding at Covenant House. Um, but I want to start with a broader question, which is, you know, right now in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, people are facing all sorts of adversity, whether it's just a disruption to how they live, uh, you know, on a, one hand um, to, you know, actual sickness and, and um, you know, some people are dying, people are losing their livelihoods. There's a lot of trauma happening right now, but I, I'm curious how in general, something like this is different for uh, the homeless population anywhere. I guess I've got to look at it through a New Orleans lens and a Katrina world, because that's the, the closest comparison I can make. But, you know, to the homeless, um, at, at first, especially the older homeless, there, there's an aspect of, you know, they're, they're just oblivious to what, what is happening because they're, they're struggling just to survive hour by hour, day by day, um, and to try to wrap their, their arms around this corona, coronavirus when they might not have media uh, outlets um, to use is really rough. The, the homeless in general, whether they be homeless adults or homeless street kids, they're in the world of survival every day. And so maybe in some realms, we've been thrown into their world and that we're wondering how we're going to survive. But this is something they deal with day in and day out. I don't know. I don't know. Just let's just take it back a step and just let me ask, how are you? Uh, what's going on down there? What is... What are you seeing? I, I, you know, New Orleans in, in, in Orleans Parish or County, the most folks uh, jargon, you know, we've got the highest per capita rate of deaths of anywhere in the country. Um, and only in the last couple of days are people starting to, to realize how, how bad it is for New Orleans. Um, I just lost a, 
a friend and Covenant House volunteer died just yesterday morning. Um, so, you know, it's getting it's getting closer. It's getting more personal. Um, you know, now you know family and you know friends who have tested positive, and now we're beginning to know that family and friends who, um, you know, who are dying. Um, so, so that's hard. But I, I, I guess I go back to the Katrina experience, and I was in the dome for Katrina and and worked on team hours and days and weeks and years working on trying to help New Orleans recover. Um, but it's, it is that mindset of how do I, if you start to try to wrap your armor, arms around a huge crisis, both the physical crisis um, and the um, mental health crisis, um, it's mind-blowing. So you almost have to fall into your own lane and control what you can control. Um, but I, I think there's a fair amount of triggering going on in New Orleans. Um, you know, like take mm-hmm. our kids at Covenant House. The most formative years for any any adult, any child, of course, is zero to five. Well, the young people at Covenant House that we're caring for today were between the ages of zero and five when Katrina hit. So we, when you made reference earlier to trauma, we're talking about piling trauma upon trauma. So, you know, the young people I care for went through Katrina when they were zero to five. Then in their teen years, they became victims of assault and, and trafficking and physical and sexual abuse and, and drug and substance abuse and, and everything else. And then they find themselves homeless and then end up in our care. And last week, 85% of our young people got let go, became unemployed. I'm sorry, what percentage? 85%. Of our kids all got laid off last week, and these are people who basically who had been homeless and, and perhaps have had been homeless on the, on the path to some sort of recovery. That's right. They were following their plan. That's right. They were they were getting jobs. They were saving eighty percent of their income. They were doing all the right things, and we were, you know, helping them. And eighty five percent lost their jobs last week, and that's across the board in a town like New Orleans, right? Because everything, our two major industries our tourism and that's just gotten slaughtered because no one's traveling right business or pleasure and then number two is oil and the price of oil has been in the tank for uh, a, over a year and now it even, even dropped further so it had been up around 60 it dropped down to 40 and, and recently it dropped into like 31 well that's a, that's a huge hit for for a place like louisiana and a place like new orleans um as far as how as far as how I'm doing, um, I'm doing fine. You know, I'm, my focus is on the young people, the 208 young people that we're caring for today. Um, my focus is on making sure that no matter how many come and knock on our door, we're going to take them in. Um, in essence, we're we're sort of preparing to hunker down like you do for a hurricane, and we know we're going to get hit, and we know when we do get hit, it's going to ricochet all throughout Covenant House um, because. You know, in essence, it's it's a dorm, uh, just like any college or university. Um, it's a dorm, and our kids are susceptible. They are younger, and, and that they have going for them. But um, if you are you have serious substance abuse problems, if you've got diabetes, if 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 you're pregnant or you have young children, you know, pregnant women are one of the highest risk factors, and. and um, I've, I've got right now in my care. I've got seven pregnant women, hmm. 
and 43 young mothers and children, right? That doesn't, I'm not even talking about the young people who have substance and drug addiction, drug addiction issues making them vulnerable. Uh, I'm not talking about the young people who are HIV. Um, you know, so we've got a lot of vulnerable populations. Um, and although I always believe our young people are resilient, and they are, this is a different fight. This is a different battle. Yeah, I, I wonder if you can, if we can unpack that people who are on the road to recovery who lose their job. I mean, you know, I'm sure I, I have friends and family who've lost jobs and who've fallen on hard times, having a hard time paying their rent. They may have to move in with their their parents, uh, other family, friends, things like that. But I assume you're talking about people who don't have that option, like as far as fallbacks. That's right. Well, I mean, when, when I'm talking about our young people, that's for sure. But, you know, when you've got a gig economy, when you've got a tourism economy, they're being paid minimum wage. They're being paid barely above minimum wage. And so all of those restaurant workers, all of those hotel workers, well, you know, they're out of work, right? And that's that's our industry. That's, that's where people – but, you know, lots of them don't have health insurance. Lots of them, most of them – you know, are living paycheck to paycheck at, at the most that maybe they could survive for instead of two weeks, maybe they could make four weeks, but no more than that. Mm. And that's what we're having. We're having our whole populace. And that can all, and, and the sad part is, and this we do know from Katrina, is I'm going to see more young people. Families are going to break apart. Mm-hmm. There's going to be dom- more domestic violence than ever before. There's going to be more child abuse and sexual assault. There's going to be more rapes. There's going to be more human trafficking. Okay, a storm, you know, a storm like this, but sorry to have the New Orleans reference, but a storm like this, the poor and the young are the ones who are at the bottom and they're the ones who get dumped on the most. They are the ones that that all of these packages that are being put out will be the last to to see any benefit. You know, um, they they will suffer the most. They will suffer the most and we will see more and more young people who need our services. And so that's part of what I'm preparing for. Uh, in one realm, I'm preparing for being hit by the virus and it going through us like a cruise ship. All right. And that's what's going to happen. I fully expect to get it. I'm okay with that. It's an easier mindset to be in. Right. But we're fully and our staff are coming to work every day. They come to work every day. They know they can become that our kids are carriers. Right. And that they could become contagious and they know they could go home and then be contagious to their families, but they still come mm-hmm. every day because of their great love for our kids. Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, look, obviously a lot of people are experiencing hard times, but there will be, you know, some, some of our listeners are in a position to help and, and how, how can they help Covenant House, New Orleans, only 25% of our money comes from government. 75% of our money, we go out and beg, borrow, and steal um, because our kids aren't important to people. Uh, that's the bottom line. But if people, they can go to covenanthousenola.com um, and make a contribution, and that would be fabulous. Um, they can pray. Um, you know, I, I know I might have come across on this as not very hopeful, but, but I am by nature very hopeful. I know we've got a phenomenal to take this on is, is all of us, right? Every family, every individual. This is this is stretching America in ways we've never been stretched before. 
but I, I'm still a believer. I, I still believe we're going to come out the other end. Um, you know, what's the most, you know, we need grace. We need grace, you know, um, that's how, that's how we're going to get through it and get through it in a civilized manner and not being rich against poor and black against white and Republican against Democrat. We need to come together. We need to come together, fight this thing together. And, and that's what's important. We need leadership that is putting their egos aside and, and, and is swallowing their, you know, and is, has humility. Um, and that's what we need. Before we go, it may, may seem a bit odd to ask you this, but I know that you know music is uh, for many of us and, and probably for you as well something that helps us get through uh, challenging times. And I wonder if you know you have a song uh, that you would care to add to the playlist we're building. Well, to me, it's Amazing Grace. You know, you know, I mean, what grace is is God's unlock unmerited, unconditional love for us. And um, grace is what carries us through. Um, I really believe that the underside, the positive underside of resilience is grace. That grace is that cornerstone that resilience builds on. And so Amazing Grace would be the song that I would add to your list. Amazing Grace How sweet Saved a wretch like me. Next, we take you to the back of a cab somewhere in Hong Kong to chat with Joshua Wong, the Secretary General of Pro Democracy Activist Group Demosisto. Joshua's a busy guy. He spends most of his time fighting against the government of Hong Kong, which essentially means the government of China, uh, for some pretty basic human rights. He emerged as one of the most prominent figures in the Umbrella Movement a few years back, and uh, he's continued to be a thorn in the government's side ever since, including being one of the millions of Hong Kongers who have been taking to the streets for the better part of the past year. Since Hong Kong was one of the first places to report cases of COVID-19 back in January, we wanted to find out how the pandemic has impacted the city as well as the protest movement. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Uh, Joshua, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, you know, I'll start right away and ask you. I mean, what's your take on how Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government in general are handling uh, the pandemic? Um, with how uh, the government refused to shut down the border two months ago, which just result in the outbreak uh, pandemic uh, virus, and it's far from our imagination, and. Uh, Compared to Western country, have lots of citizens such to line up outside of some of the uh, shopping mall uh, to buy uh, enough food, uh, drinks, or uh, or surgical muscle, etc. Hong Kongers uh, start to line up, uh, line up outside of the shopping mall for surgical masks since uh, late of January. Mm-hmm. Do I understand correctly that you got directly involved? in trying to procure masks for Hong Kong people. Is that right? Yeah, we import uh, more than 1.3 million surgical masks uh, from uh, from countries around the world Yeah, on February. 
you and millions of uh, Hong Kong people have been engaged in a, a battle with the Hong Kong government for the better part of the past year. And when we met in January, you talked about how you felt that this movement had the momentum to carry into 2020. And, you know, from what I saw there, I certainly believed it. But I, I wonder how this pandemic and the lockdowns and all of these things have uh, affected the protest movement and, and how you think it's affected the momentum. It's difficult for us to uh, to enhance the mass mobilization. Just like first of January of this year, we have more than one million people to the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we have online assembly every month, and we are preparing for the upcoming election on September, uh, which is the legislative president election, and we hope to take the majority and to uh, take the majority in the legislative council. Right. I guess the question is. At this moment, this is something where people need their government to uh, succeed, you know, and and, and I think that in uh, many of the struggles that you've been dealing with, any time the government makes a misstep or has an error, you know, that's something that's leverage uh, for the protest movement. But I wonder how do you deal with this situation where you, you know, of course, uh, would love to have more leverage over the government, but at the same time, you want to see them succeed for the the well-being of the people there. Transparency and check and balance are both our most important element for the government to hold their accountability to handle the crisis. But I just realized how national pride and the interest of Beijing override uh, the uh, the problem of the public health issue, which is really disappointing. And just in general, I mean, what are you seeing in Hong Kong? Have things started to return to normal? Or are you still in a lockdown? Um, ne- never expected as normal. And everyone uh, just uh, enhanced the um, dissatisfaction to the government. Especially, I hope to point out uh, one of the uh, survey uh, conducted by a uh, uh, Reuters, and mm-hmm. according to the Reuters poll, support for protesters has grown even through rallies polls. More people demand our city leader to step down from 57% in last December to 63% in March. Why do you think that is? People have no trust on the government. Right. And, uh, is there any advice that you have for places that are just starting to experience the outbreaks of COVID-19 and, and starting to get locked down? I mean, anything that you've learned during this time that you would advise others of? Um, how to stay healthy, how to uh, wash our hands regularly and uh, wear the mask is the practice we have in Hong Kong. But more important is uh, how hold the government accountability is extremely important. Sure, sure. You know, here at the Modernist Society, we rely a lot on music to help us get through challenging times like these. And I wonder if there's anything that you're listening to that feels like it's the perfect song to describe this moment. Um, because yeah, uh, in Hong Kong, we love Cantonese song more than uh, more than English song. So uh, yeah, it's a bit difficult for me to figure out. But I think. Um, now it's not only the battle of uh, overcome the public health crisis. Now it's also the battle of how we deal with the government around the world. There is a lack of transparency and accountability. Uh, most, uh, most we emphasize on Beijing. Yeah. 
Now that was probably one of my favorite examples of answering the question you want to answer. In fairness, Joshua did follow up by email and he put forth this song, Glory to Hong Kong, which has become the anthem of the protest movement there. Now we head back to Tokyo to talk to investigative journalist Jake Adelstein, who, incidentally, was the first guest on this podcast iteration of the Modernist Society. Jake has had his nose to the grindstone trying to figure out why Japan has so few coronavirus deaths. Thank you for joining us, Jake. Uh, So Japan has roughly 1,300 confirmed coronavirus cases, about 45 deaths. Uh, yeah. business uh, I mean, 49 like, 49 oh, oh, 40, it depends on how you count them okay about 49 deaths this is uh mm. thursday march 26th when we're speaking um yeah you know people seem to be going about their daily lives so my question is is the government cooking the books or have they got this thing figured out uh can i swear on this program oh please of course they don't have this fucking figured out i'm mean, jesus christ uh you know the only thing that I mean, if you if you don't test anyone, of course you don't have any coronavirus sufferers. Um, I believe you know, and I'm I'm using earlier figures because I have them memorized in my head for some reason. Uh, on March second, Korea for every one million people, Korea tested four thousand ninety nine people. Japan tested seventy two. Mm. So Japan seventy two per million fits in the butt end of Korea's four thousand ninety nine people. If you don't test, you don't know. Hmm. That leaves the question, why aren't people dying in droves? Why aren't the hospitals overrun if Japan is suppressing the test numbers? And that becomes a very complex thing to explain. Um, But a lot of it has to do with Japan is very good at treating the symptoms of coronavirus, the diseases that you can get. um, And that is probably keeping down all the numbers. Would that not count as success? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, if you I can't. To keep people from dying from the thing. So yes, if you keep people from dying, it's success. Here's the problem: if you don't do any containment at all, right? And Korea is very big on containment and treatment. So Korea kept their fertility rate to 0.6 percent, I believe, at the last, the last time with you know, you know, hundreds of like a ton of people infected. And I don't have the Korea figures in front of me. I think their death toll is at. 133 people. And if you look at the grand total of people who have been tested in Korea and have been found infected, that is about 0.7%, 0.6%, which is the lowest fatality rate around. Um, but they have combined you know, good treatment uh, with containment procedures, which Japan doesn't. So there's always a possibility that suddenly you get such a huge wave of people in Japan that this kind of treat the symptoms but don't test for the disease policy could fail. And, you know, we may just be at the start of that. Nobody knows. But, you know, because I'm a geek and I, I'm into these things, I have, like, been in the last two weeks, been assailing myself of the manuals they give to doctors, like how to deal with the coronavirus. And it's very interesting because the Japanese Center for Infectious Prevention of Infectious Diseases, which is kind of one of the, one of the places you go if you're a medical professional and you want to know what to do, their manual, which is like 30 pages, it only mentions really testing for the coronavirus on the last page. And it has this wonderfully sort of like, you know, what the, what the fuck part in, the, I think, on page three, in which it says, like, 
from you know March 6 the National Health Insurance of Japan is covering the coronavirus test this means that you must be very choosy in who you give those tests to because you'll be using taxpayer money right so the manual also makes this great point which is which which I you know I find it hard to disagree with um, and someone from the Ministry of Health Labor and Welfare told me the same thing over you know a uh, an not off the record, but don't name me uh, drinkathon while you're both smoking. Uh, I, and I really shouldn't be smoking in the middle of the coronavirus. I don't know what I don't know what I was thinking, but I was drunk, and so was he. Um, God, I hope my kids don't hear this. But what he said was, okay, you know, the coronavirus itself we can't treat. You know, there's no treatment for it. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, almost like paraphrasing uh, Sophocles and Oedipus Rex. You know, what what price wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise? Whoa! You, so, well, if you displace all these people, one more time. what price wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise? <laughs> you know, he explains like, so let's say I find out you have the coronavirus. I can't do anything but watch you and make sure you don't get pneumonia or sepsis or some other thing. Um, but, you know, unless you've got a fever or something, you're just taking up hospital space. It's using valuable resources. We're not going to we're not going to quarantine you because basically we're, we're way past containment. We are on to the, you know widespread epidemic period. So uh, it, the best thing is, and, what, and he says, and what we're ac- people are actually doing in the field is we, we look at you, if you have a fever for a couple of days, um, are you really, you know, you're really seeming ill, we'll do a CT. And Japan has, I think, the highest ratio of s- CT scanners per any country in the world. The, the nice thing about a CT scan is it tells you very early if someone has pneumonia. Mm. And while you can't treat pneumonia, you can certainly treat the symptoms and you can keep someone alive long enough that their immune system kicks in and they beat the virus if you're lucky. Hmm. Aren't there vaccines for pneumonia? Should, be, should we be rushing yes, out yes. and getting pneumonia uh, vaccine? Well, well, okay. So there, Japan actually vaccinates people over 65. It's, it's, very op, it's optional, but they encourage you to do it for one type of bacterial pneumonia, which I can't even pronounce like stropicosilosis or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there are, you know, a, a large number of elderly people in Japan are vaccinated for that bacterial pneumonia, and no one knows whether maybe that's helping people not catch it or not get sick. You know, most people, what is eighty percent of people are going to are going to get the coronavirus and are going to be show no symptoms and not going to get sick. There's just, and then there's a, a bunch of people that are going to get sick, and then the fat- fatality rate. I mean, Italy. If you look at Italy, it's like Jesus Christ, this thing kills everybody. But you look at South Korea, and it's like, okay, it's less than 1%. So what's going on? And nobody knows. I mean, people have theories, but nobody has an answer. Japan has a very good healthcare system, and Japanese people are hypochondriacs. I think the, hmm. the you know, the, the, the number of Japanese who visit their physician per capita is one of the highest in the world. So it's like, you get sick here, you just, you know, you go to the clinic. When you, when you have, you know, easy access to medical care, people tend to use it. And if you can be identified as someone who, who might be sick or going to get sick from having the coronavirus, that probably helps you not die from it. You know, it's uh, all, all illnesses start from little things. I got to run a conspiracy theory past you and just see if you've heard of it and if you think there's any validity whatsoever. Might be a silly question. Shoot. I've heard that there's a, you know, uh, Japan's response or lack of response to the coronavirus has something to do with the Olympics and really not wanting to cancel. Oh, oh, of course, of course. Japan has set up the the testing to be an obstacle course, right? Hmm. 
Prime Minister Abe and, you know, I'm wearing a scarf all the time, Governor Koike, have such a hard-on for the Olympics. You know, within their reign of error, that they have been, you know, absolutely pressuring everyone to keep those numbers low. If the numbers get high, no one's going to, no one wants to come. Now that the Olympics have been postponed, uh, basically after Canada said, um, "Fuck you, we're not sending our athletes to, you know, to Tokyo or having them train in these dangerous circumstances," followed by Australia, it, you know, suddenly Japan was like, "Well, we, we, you know, we decided to talk to the IOC and." We proposed postponing in a year because athletes first. I, I mean, I don't know if anyone really believes that scenario. But yes, um, Japan has deliberately and systematically suppressed testing so that you don't get high numbers. Um, and today, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'll put this out on the internet later. The German embassy on their webpage basically said um, to the German citizens in Japan, uh, uh, Japan's testing is unreliable. Um, they're deliberately keeping the numbers down. They only test people who have had a fever for four days, or been to a foreign country, or been directly exposed to someone who has the coronavirus. You can't believe them. Quarantine yourselves. Wow. No, that's not a very diplomatic thing to say. And you know, I think the Uber allies are going to have a split after this. <laughs> but uh, when it gets that bad, uh, and and you know, I uh, I'm not very well liked at the u.s embassy these days sorry but uh at other embassies <laughs> who still like me um, i've all been hearing the same thing like yeah we don't believe the japanese numbers can you explain to us what's actually going on or what do you think is going on and i tell them it's not a conspiracy theory it's it's a fact japan kept the numbers as low as possible so that the olympics looked like it was still plausible um at the same time i will say that there's some people and the Japanese government and the medical establishment that have thought this out and are be like, well, since we're way past containment, what is the best way to save lives? And the manual says, place saving the lives of pneumonia patients before testing. That should be your priority, and that's hard to argue with. And it, it only makes sense when you're like, we can't contain the virus anymore. Containment policies don't work. Wow. Eric was right. That's what I'm saying wow to you. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Everybody knows it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I mean, thank I'm God right the Germans. It. The Germans just spell it out. You know, like good for you guys. Well, well, here, well, here's the last question. Why is everyone? I understand why the government might be behaving in that way. So, but why are why is the general populace behaving as if nothing is wrong? You guys are locked down in New York, and I don't want to say this like, <laughs> um. Because, I, I mean, it, it must suck to be locked down. But here in Japan, like, we're going to cherry blossom viewing. And even though they're like, you know, refrain yourself from public events, we're still getting on these these crowded trains that are actually probably the worst vectors of coronavirus around. Um, and so things seem to be normal. And, and, you know, the Japanese government is very inconsistent. The Ministry of Health and Welfare put out this poster that said, you know, let's go outside. But avoid the three densities. And what are the three densities? Poorly ventilated places. Places where there are, are overcrowded with lots of people and places where you have to be in close contact with people. So they have all these pictures of like, you know, bars and event spaces. But what they don't have a picture is of the fucking trains. Because if you get on the, a rush hour train in Tokyo, you might as well be rubbing your face in coronavirus. There's no way to avoid anyone. But of course, that's not on the poster because if you tell people not to get on the train, work stops. And you know... Japan is all about big business. 
little people, especially under the Abbott administration, are secondary. So mm-hmm. it's a joke. As long as you have people getting on the train to go to work, there's no point in telling them don't go to public events. Uh, don't go to uh, have cherry blossom viewing in the park. I feel like Japanese people are aware of that. Like there's a sort of like button down look to society, but like people aren't dumb. Like I was texting a friend over there, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And she was like, yeah, it's a joke. Like we're all taking the train. So what, like, what I think the, I think uh, I think people over are there panicking, are... panicking because there's not a lot of deaths. Right. Um, and the reportage of it is really like a 60 year old person somewhere, uh, died of the coronavirus virus, 80 year old person, you know, whenever someone's infected, they always try and lead with the news. It, it, sort of the BBC of Japan, NHK has been taken over by the Abe government. It's state propaganda. So whenever someone's infected, if there's anyone who's been infected by, because they came back from overseas travel, that's the lead, right? You know, we had 17 people infected with coronavirus today. One of them had just come back from Australia or France. As if to say, oh, this is a foreign problem. Don't worry about contamination within the country. Um, so everybody is sort of, you know, told that it's not really a serious problem. That's kind of under control. And therefore, th- therefore, no one has been panicking. And the government has really been sort of keeping the coverage of it low and the numbers low. I mean, like, you know, you hear 1,300 people. Okay, that seems like a lot of people. But it's like, what, 40, 45 deaths, 49 deaths. You're going, oh, you know, it's not really fatal. It's like... You know, if you get it and you, you die, you're probably really old and going to die anyway. That's kind of the attitude that takes. And there's also this kind of wonderful Japanese fatalism to life, kind of this shikata which basically means there's no way. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, if, it's, if it happens, it happens. Jake, when you first joined us for Modernist Society, episode one, you talked about your background in community radio. So uh, I'd love to ask you, to choose a song for the playlist we're building uh, to kind of uh, serve as the soundtrack to this coronavirus moment. Oh, absolutely, absolutely! I almost have it on. I have it on repeat on my on my phone. Um, Everybody knows by Leonard Cohen the the version sung by Sigrid, which was also in um, I think Justice League of America, which I liked as a movie. Pardon me, but uh, <laughs> it's this incredibly pessimistic song by by Leonard Cohen but the but that has this part that, that towards the end that gives you chills now which is you know everybody knows that the plague is coming everybody knows that it's moving fast and you're like wow yeah like Leonard you know and the all the other verses about uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and and uh, what a fucked up world it is it sounds just like you know President Trump's reign <laughs> but those two lines about everybody knows the plague is coming everybody knows it's moving fast it's like yeah we all know Now let's go to London to talk to Richard Gisbert. He's the host of Al Jazeera's media analysis show, The Listening Post. Thank you for joining us from sunny London. It is sunny, actually, unusually. The, the weather has been dystopianly and unusually good. <laughs> so from where you sit as, a, as a, a human being and also an observer of the media, how are things? You know, one of the things that strikes me, Jason, is that we're we're going through something we've never gone through before. We are also, this is occurring at a time where suspicion 
towards the media is at an all-time historical high. And it's also a time where, curiously enough, people have got to be more reliant on media for their own personal safety than they've ever had to have been before. That's one of the things that I'm seeing here. Uh, how do you think they are uh, living up to that burden? I think there's some remarkable journalism going on. I mean, I live in London. I mean, uh, I monitor the global media as part of my job. Last week, we did the piece on U.S. media and the crimes against journalism that Fox News has been perpetrating, you know, making the point that given their demographic, the fact that they've got the oldest viewing audience of all the news channels, and given the messaging that they were putting out in the early days, I mean, that is some of the most truly dangerous reporting that you can come across. I think um, I look at the other news networks, I see too many searches for cheap headlines. I see too many, too many stories about celebrities coming down with this, as opposed to, you know, what it might mean for the masses. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, it's existential times, but clickbait is still what it is, right? And they've still got to deliver. They got business models. I also wonder, is this the end of print newspapers as we know mm -hmm. them? You know, could this be the final nail in the coffin? On the other hand, I'm over here and I don't want to sound like, you know, a cliche member of the London liberal metropolitan elite, but the Guardian's coverage here in the UK, which you guys can see, has been, you know, quite extraordinarily good. I mean, they come at the government from an antagonistic point of view, a critical point of view that verges on antagonism from time to time. But the across the board information that is there uh, for particularly for residents of the UK on the part of the Guardian is really, really impressive. And the other thing that I think about, and you know, Jason's lived in the UK, he knows about the role that the NHS, the health service plays in this society. He also knows about the role that the BBC plays in this society. And a lot of people early on here were saying, you know, the Tories who were out to cut the NHS would do so at their electoral peril right now. And I also think that um, the BBC, it's a big moment for the BBC in the UK because they, they can bring their muscle to this story. Um, they can bring their resources across the country and across the world. And I am hoping that soon people will begin to speak of the BBC as you know potentially being saved by this pandemic in the same way that they've been speaking about the NHS from the get-go. I'm curious what you're seeing um, both in coverage in the UK and, you know, the international media that you pay attention to far more regularly than most people. I mean, in the US, you know, it's, it's certainly it's wall to wall coverage. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, it, it, but it seems to be bogged down, at least on television, in stats, which can be useful. You know, we do want to know how things are progressing and, and you know, see the numbers up on the board. But at the same time, I, I can't help but feel what's missing is, you know, what my friend Charlie Leduff would call the human touch. We're not really getting stories about people and, and how it's impacting people. And I can't help but feel like those would actually be more impactful in modifying uh, the behavior of the general public if we could actually understand what this looks like and how it's affecting our lives, how it's, how it's affecting people we can relate to. 
Well, I think the reliance of the stats is, you know, obviously the stats are central. Um, they're also problematic in an environment like the U.S. where your testing is just not nearly at the level that it should be. And so those stats are then misleadingly low. Um, I can't really speak for print so much. I, I think about television because I've worked in it for so long. Telling people stories right now on television is a hard thing to do. And it's a potentially dangerous thing to do. You know me, Jason. I don't like to cut the mainstream media much slack when it comes to stuff like this. Mm -hmm. But on this story, where contact can be a death sentence, they have some pretty good excuses for not doing that kind of stuff. Now, you know, there's Skype. There's other things that they can do. Um, but but I, 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 that really hasn't jumped out at me as much in the U.S. coverage. What's jumped out at me is the binary. You know, it's 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 the two sides, the inability to get beyond, you know, the partisan stuff, which seems to be so much more entrenched in American politics and in the resulting media coverage than it does elsewhere. I don't, you know, I don't purport to like really track the media that well. I'm telling you something that I just happened to see when I was like watching TV like a regular guy. And I swear it was Trump not that long ago, who I know on a a list of dumb things he said, this would probably barely make the list, but was like, we're not worried about it. Our supporters aren't worried about it. I mean, he's just running his mouth about like, you know, just that this is all nonsense. And I just thought, I'm kind of surprised that you don't see that replayed. I guess maybe is the media actually sensitive enough to say, you know what, we'll circle back and follow up on that in a bit. This isn't really the time to point out that like he was saying a bunch of dumb crap. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Rachel Maddow goes on MSNBC uh, a few days in and just basically said, you know, your, your, your news media, we have to stop covering this stuff live. You know, basically, they, they're say, she was saying the same thing you're saying now, you know, that they have got to, you know, look, there's clickbait and then there's catnip. Hmm. And for the mainstream media, that is what Trump has always been. As much as MSNBC, you know, rails against him today, Joe Scarborough in particular, well, Scarborough and Brzezinski on their morning show, they were more addicted to Donald Trump in the early days of their primaries heading into 2016 than CNN or Fox News, all right? Mm -hmm. And that bias was a commercial bias. It, you know, it was about the revenues. And, you know, what Scarborough and Brzezinski couldn't resist then I think they're no better equipped to resist now. They're more ideological, ideologically confrontational when, when handed that material in a way they should have been back in 2016 but weren't. But they are, you know, the economic realities, uh, you know, are as real to them today as they were in 2016. And so as much as I'd like to see somebody follow up on Rachel Maddow's suggestion, we're not going to air this guy live. We're just going to pick it apart and we're going to feed it to you in bits when we've had time to contextualize it. I don't think the U.S. mainstream media could ever bring themselves to leave that catnip alone. Yeah, it is alarming. I mean, especially, you know, uh, I talked to my mom, you know, some maybe shortly after that statement, she was talking about Trump. She said, well, he seems optimistic. I'm like, good. Good. Like he, he is optimistic and you know, like that's great. Uh, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't change anything. And it, and it doesn't mean you should be optimistic or, or, or follow 
any advice given by him. Oh, I know, but but too many people are in the same category as your mother, Jace, you know, because, you know, you see the approval numbers. He has been, you know, Trump in the months running up to the coronavirus, he could not fall below 43% approval ratings. I mean, that was the rock bottom cement floor insofar as Republicans were concerned. But he was sitting consistently at 43, 44%. And on this, he's now sitting at 53% approving of the way he is handling this crisis, 47% opposed. So it may look to you in Chicago like this is insanity, but it's a form of insanity that the data says works. So Richard, we're, we're building a, a, a playlist for living through uh, the coronavirus, and, and we wonder if you uh, might suggest a song uh song i've been listening to a lot recently there's a band called soul savers i think they're from the north of the uk hmm. uh, and the song is called revival and it's it's a it's a sort of gospely spiritual tune uh that i have to say i was i clocked onto before this the virus kicked in but is uh has been getting a lot of play in my ears Last but not least, they say that journalists write the first rough draft of history. Our next guest writes not just the first, but oftentimes the second, thanks to his ability to pry documents loose from the U.S. government, sometimes years after a story has fallen from the headlines. One day, the coronavirus pandemic will be behind us, and the pressure will be off all of the government officials that you currently see out there sweating bullets. Jason Leopold, senior investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News, will still be on the case. So for the final interview of this episode, let's go to Los Angeles. How you doing, man? Very good. So this is Eric. Eric's in Chicago. I'm in Greenpoint. Hey, Eric. What's happening, man? Hey, great to meet you. Thanks for doing the you call. You as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, how how are you? I, I want to hear all about uh, you know your intrepid investigations, but I, I also want to hear about you as a human. What's going on in California? How are you feeling? Um, yeah, you know, things are fucking crazy. Uh, I mean, on the, on the personal side, it's interesting because everyone's working at home, you know, uh, kids at home doing school at home. Um, so that's, uh, a odd adjustment. And then also reporting on this from home. Uh, so that's challenging. Um, but L.A. is uh, very different than New York. How so? People people are staying inside for the most part. <laughs> at least at, at least where I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously the the numbers are pretty different. Also, L.A. is kind of a different culture, though, right? I mean, it's, it's beautiful weather, but people do you know dri- drive around in their cars, and there's not a lot yeah. of congestion on sidewalks. I mean, you know, we barely I, I barely know my neighbors, so it's not as if like it's you know we're very social to begin with but uh yeah no it's uh it's crazy it's it's i think there's still a shock factor to this right that it's just surfaced so quickly just in two weeks you could see the sort of radical changes that you're forced to make and so i think that's kind of shocking i think it's shocking to people to sort of have to adjust their lives uh immediately by force in such a way you know mm-hmm. particularly in a in a matter that's life or death so i think it's just people are are just kind of feeling it 
Talk to us a bit about the work you're doing. I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of real-time reporting, but so much of what you are, I'll I'll dare say, famous for is, you know, uh, use of uh, Freedom of Information Act, FOIA stuff. And that's like pulling teeth most of the time. and, And it will probably not get into your hands until years from now. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, years from now when we want to look back and, and get some answer to what the fuck happened, what is the information you're trying to extract from the government to answer that question? Pretty much everything. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to the Freedom of Information Act, when it comes to documents about anything that the government is doing, I mean, general, generally, I like to have every record that they have. I mean, that's my, that's on my wish list, right? So I can, Mm -hmm. so I can then use those records to craft a narrative and, uh, let people know what was, what is taking place, what has taken place behind the scenes. What happened in the buildup to the, the national emergency? We have a window of two months, right? January, more or less to March to, um, you know, where we are currently. During that time frame, I think it's really important that the public is informed about what their government officials did um, or what they didn't do. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a painstaking effort to get documents out of the government. And then I'll, already I've sued, you know, the CDC um, and uh, uh, other agencies to get these records because I know it's going to take, you know, quite some time and in a lawsuit kind of helps speed up the release of, of records. And, um, and while that's happening at the same time, trying to get people to, to talk, you know, and, and that's always a challenge. It's not just unique to this administration, certainly the Obama administration and the Bush administration as well, but trying to get people to, to speak freely, to understand that they, you know, uh, that they need to speak, mm-hmm. um, trying to convince them of that. And it's hard because everyone's scared. What are they scared of? Scared of losing their jobs. They're scared of getting, arrest, uh, getting arrested. And, and, and it's different with scientists where their work really is about science. You know, it's, it's, it's about facts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it, the, politics don't usually um, uh, get in the way of what they're doing, but that's, kind of what's happening now because you see Trump out front and center um, kind of, uh, you know, being the conductor uh, over everything that's kind of unfolding, you know, this of the show in some some ways. And so it's my very long, long winded answer for you. Uh, that's, that's a good answer. But, you know, as the coronavirus has caused disruption to people's lives and government agencies, it seems that um, it's also causing disruption to uh, fulfilling FOIA requests. Uh, uh, it and, is. Yeah. And, and like, for example, I, 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 there's a story that you shared on Twitter. It was a Columbia Journalism Review story uh, that mentioned that the FBI is no longer accepting uh, electronic FOIA requests. However, uh, you, you can um, put your saliva on an envelope and uh, leave your house and go down to the mailbox and touch the mailbox and put it in there and send it right. to them. And th- that's how you can file yeah. FOIA requests with them right now. Yeah. FOIA operations are shut down uh, across the federal government, more or less. Interestingly, however, 
Um, the CDC, the FDA, the National Institute of Health, I mean, all of the agencies that are kind of working on pandemic response right now are responding and, and working on FOIA requests. And what's really funny is that the CDC is doing the exact opposite of the FBI. On their website, they say, don't mail us anything. <laughs> e- email it. Um, you know, so... Well, it's good to hear uh, that they're responsive. Are, I mean, are they responding uh, uh, to these as urgent requests? Yeah, no, they're granting the expedited processing. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, these documents that, that I'm going after and that other people are going after could be politically explosive. Mm-hmm. And that could lead to, you know, negative news coverage, which is how some of the agencies uh, define, you know, uh, documents where there's such high interest. Um, And so there's, you know, I'm certainly hoping it's not the case, but there is a possibility that that too can be politicized. And the agencies may either redact or withhold records under one of FOIA's nine exemptions. Um, essentially, you know, there's nothing that would essentially be classified that I can, you know, that, that I can imagine, but they could try and, and, uh, and do that to protect high level government officials from, from embarrassment. Right. Can you talk to me about, uh, there's another one that you kind of tweeted out as an example of poor transparency from CDC that the agency had identified 18 pages of, uh, right. Coronavirus communications, but is... Doing what? It's them. a communications plan. Yeah, they withheld. Oh, it's everything. a communications plan. It's a communications plan. How they plan to, you know, how they would essentially communicate this, whether it's to the public, um, whether it's internally. Uh, um, it's important information because, again, what we have not seen, what the public hasn't seen, what they, what they have asked about is where is the CDC? Where are all these officials? who are experts and scientists, why aren't they out there front and center? Mm-hmm. Where are they? Um, and it's a good question. We don't know the answer because they're, they, they, it, it appears that, you know, they've been sidelined. So this communications plan, it's just, you know, it's just sort of an effort to kind of force transparency so the public can get insight as, again, how the agency works. You know, the reason I continuously harp on FOIA um, on, 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 on documents and trying to get documents. And by the way, you know, it doesn't just have to be through FOIA. I mean, I'd certainly hope that there's some brave person out there that would, um, you know, turn over a set of documents. Uh, like I said, I don't, uh, the government can try to say this is classified, but we're, we're not talking about, uh, national security secrets here. Um, I'm sure that there's a government official, uh, that would agree, uh, disagree, but, the, you know, the reason that documents are so important is because we're also right now dealing with lots of disinformation. Right. Um, and so the public has a very difficult time um, trusting the media. It's just a fact, you know, whether and, and, and I'm not even saying like there's one side that totally trusts the media and another side that doesn't trust the media. But the, the media is is does it doesn't have the the uh, full trust of the public. So documents sort of help the public um, uh, understand that, you know, this is the government's own words. This is, you know, something that, that you know, they're saying behind the scenes. Um, there's not an anonymous person attached to it. You know, we can actually put names to it. And so it helps build credibility 
um, and um, it helps win trust. And so it's, you know, I feel that is pretty crucial, you know, to get that, but you have to be really, really aggressive, you know, in order to do so. And I think honestly, that's what's, you know, that's what's missing. I remember the, and when I say that's what's missing, I think that's what's missing in terms of the coverage right now. There, there has to be an accountability moment, a definitive one where it can really sort of lay bare, here's everything that took place. I have a question for you. I was thinking about, you know, people who would have resistance to these emails and documents being released, and it's probably people who suspect they maybe didn't do a great job or maybe uh, know that they did something they pretty much shouldn't have. And you mentioned um, accountability, and I was wondering what you see that accountability looking like, because I can picture one would be an element of shame. You would just point a spotlight and say, this person did a bad job. Two, if they have that job, they would likely lose it or other or more. I'm just wondering what you yeah. envision that looking like. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, what an email may say, um, I'm not sure it would be as explicit as that, as, you know, I, I fucked up or, oh my God. Um, <laughs> although I have seen some emails like that from some other agencies, but I, I think that what, I, well, one, I don't want to say, you know, what I think it could ultimately look like, because I don't want it to, to come across as if I'm biased. I'm not, you know, I, I think documents are really important um, in the sense of just providing the public with some insight. But we also know that the government has been terrible in, in the ways they've managed many crises, you know, over the past, over decades. So I feel like the documents could show whether there was any political inter interference. But it's not just that. It could also be, you know, there's a contingency plan in place. And if the contingency plan um, shows that these are the steps one should take during a pandemic and it wasn't executed, well, then why not? You know, so um, I think it's just wide ranging. Hey, by the way, I have that same Stax Records box set behind it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, Man, that's I a good one. That up. Like, those are CDs? I bought that in high school. Like, yeah, it's a good one. It might have been like 91 or something. I like I it. Scratch the hell it doesn't play. I don't know why I have it, but I've yeah. read the liner notes. I loved it. Yeah, it's good. Oh, yeah, it's good. Is that the Stax Volt one? Yeah. The singles? What is it? Yeah. I can't see. Oh. Yeah. Um, we have to get you to come back on the show and do an entire session where we talk uh, not about FOIA, or reporting, but solely uh, about music with you. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but but, but to that end, I wonder if you can give us a song uh, that you think captures this moment. The song for me would have to be uh, "Infected" by Bad Religion, uh, and I, I mean, it, first of all, it's a it just lyrically kind of seems you know perfect. Uh, it obviously is not necessarily about a pandemic or a virus. Uh, it's um, it's funny because it's off their it's off their album uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which is also a you know the title that seems to be apropos. Um, mm. You know we're, we're we're certainly living those times, um, and uh, it's it's that album is was more of a commercial breakthrough for Bad Religion. So I was going to um, say their sellout record, but yeah, go ahead, commercial breakthrough. Yeah, sure. their sellout record. Um, <laughs> But it, and it's funny. It was when they were on Atlant Atlantic Records, right, right. so it wasn't even it wasn't even Epitaph at that right. point. It was like major major label, right? It was the it was major label years. But um, 
you know, it, it's, I think it's aged pretty well. Um, and it's funny, it's like bad religion to me is there's like, it's, it's sort of like how Trump has a tweet. There's a tweet for everything, for bad, <laughs> bad religion. There's a, there's a song for everything. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.